Welcome to 30 Minutes from 91.3 KXCI Tucson. I'm Amanda Schager. Since 2004, a group of committed people have gathered to call for an end to migrant deaths along the U.S.-Mexico border. Each May, hundreds of participants have embarked on a week-long, 75-mile walk from Sasabe, Sonora, Mexico, to Tucson, Arizona, to call for an end to migrant deaths along the U.S.-Mexico border and to stand in solidarity with victims of global migration. Due to the COVID-19 pandemic, participants were unable to physically unite to remember those who have died crossing. In order to continue to raise awareness about migrant deaths and to help raise money for local border justice organizations, organizers launched an alternative migrant trail walk experience to bring people together in a virtual environment. Proceeds benefited Borderlinks, the Autumn Anti-Border Collective, Keep Tucson Together, and the No More Deaths Emergency COVID-19 Bond Fund. The Migrant Trail 2020 Alternative Experience included a week of daily reflections, videos, podcasts, and featured speakers. Today on 30 Minutes, you'll hear part two of a multi-part series. Educator and activist Lupe Castillo presented Broadening Our Borderland History. Up first, a member of the Migrant Trail Organizing Committee from Austin, Texas, lecturer Olivia Mena introduces Lupe Castillo. When we walk together, it isn't uncommon at the end of a day's walk to see Lupe sitting in the shade with a bunch of people sort of sitting around her, listening and learning to the history of the borderlands. Uh, she gives these kind of wonderful in-person uh, pláticas, charlas, these talks. Uh, and because she is a, a community historian and she's also an activist. And so Lupe is a retired uh, history professor from Pima Community College in Tucson. Uh, she was also an activist in the Chicano Civil Rights Movement. She was born and raised in Tucson. <laughs> she was the co-founder of the University of Arizona's uh, Movimiento Estudiantil Chicano de Atzlan, Mecha. And in 1970, she helped to organize the Tucson residents to establish El Rio neighborhood. And she fought to help build the Joaquin Murrieta Park on Tucson's west side. At Pima Community College, she was one of the very first professors to develop Chicana and Chicano Studies courses. And so she continues to do that work uh, with organizations like Keep Tucson Together Project um, and, and continues to support uh, the Migrant Trail. Uh, Lupe is going to invite us to see the borderlands uh, from the perspective of different communities, indigenous people, Mexicans, Mexican-American communities, uh, and really offer us ways of thinking and seeing and knowing what we call the Southwest United States, or some people call it greater Northern Mexico, and expose kind of the, some of the colonial, enduring colonial uh, ecologies that persist in border communities, uh, while also broadening our capacity to imagine alternatives uh, for those who have made the borderlands their home. So please join me in virtually welcoming uh, Lupe Castillo. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Olivia. Thank you for joining with us. And what I offer today is perhaps some reflection 
on my experience as um, a lifetime of living in this region. Uh, I am as rooted as any mesquite tree. I have never been able to unroot myself from the desert and, and to leave. So I, I bring that sense of perspective. Uh, I would like to uh, begin by uh, asking ourselves, um, what is this space that we call the borderlands in which we uh, who are native to this area live in? You know, this borderland it ranges from California all, all the way uh, to Texas, and it's just probably just under 2,000 miles a boundary, a border, and we have to be very clear, imposed by invasion, by conquest, by war, by violence, and that that violence persists to this day. Accompanied by very profound resistance from the very beginning. Uh, as you know, the U.S. national narrative of our nation state, and all nation states have their official uh, narrative. Our narrative ranges in a sense of movement from the East to the West, that it was a creation of this narrative, that it was a narrative supposedly that was made freely foundational uh, to the U.S. character, uh, this sense of free movement. And that movement moving westward uh, situated this region, this area and its people to a location that was called the West, the Southwest, the Sun Belt, uh, and so forth. And was and remained, importantly, outside of the national narrative of free movement. We were not free to move, those of us who were native uh, to, to this region. So for those of us who are native to this region, we see ourselves as we are. Uh, and for those of us who live in this region, we live in what we sense in ourselves as the North, El Norte. So for us, our history, our culture, our narrative is a North-South sense. This does not make this narrative better than the East-West narrative. It's a different narrative, but it's intersectional. And this is what makes this very complex because on this layer, are a complexity of other narratives that, um, that lay one on top of the other, as one uh, anthropologist called it, the cycles of conquest. Okay, and, and so uh, that's what we're kind of looking at. Uh, but when I talk about North and South, I see also from time immemorial into mythic time that uh, we have this sense. Uh, for example, idea of a place of Aslan and the great journey that was made from Aslan to the south, to the lake areas uh, where the gods uh, prophesied, there you will find a lake 
on the lake will be an opal, an eagle, and a serpent will be in the beak of this eagle. Uh, this was the great city of Tenochtitlan, its founding Mexico. That is as great a journey story as any that are creator stories throughout uh, the planet of all people. Uh, there is no question that the most profound space in this region is indigenous. And it isn't one people, but many peoples that are in their own time, in their own place in this area. Uh, we have to completely understand that before we even talk about a border. Uh, let me just give a simple example. Here in the state of Arizona, for example, as we sit here reflecting, there are over 20 languages native to this area that are being spoken outside of English and Spanish. And it is spoken by people in their own place, in their own time, in their way of life. Uh, and they are not simply surviving, but creating future within their own time. And this is what I call the big resistance, the presence. And even in face of enormous oppressive conditions over a long time, uh, we can date it back over 500 years, uh, and like today, for example, we see the enormous conditions under which the Dene, the Navajo people are living with the COVID virus. That is the, the very most important piece over there, over the indigenous then um, comes another very profound layer that is led by, um, you know, the Spanish empire. Okay, and, and this is important to, to understand because the Spanish empire invading, uh, conquering, establishing a colonial cultural control was over, lasted over 300 years. As far as San Francisco, all the way uh, to the tip of uh, South America and into the Caribbean. It's important, 300 years. Think about it, the United States as a nation state is, uh, is less than that. So the impact is still alive with us. And uh, for those of you who have traveled uh, into Mexico, Central America, South America, you know that it is still, that weight of that history is still very heavy uh, on, on the communities there. Uh, and that those communities are still in resistance 500 years. Over the, the, the um, presence of the Spanish Empire, let us not forget that the Spanish Empire that invaded uh, these regions was the most powerful and the first modern empire of Europe. And it was a global empire as powerful as how we see the United States today. I mean, it ranged all the way from Sevilla, all the way to, uh, to the Philippines. 
uh, and, and controlled enormous wealth that was all pooled into Europe and that went to pay uh, the bankers of Germany, uh, the bankers of Italy, uh, the bankers of, of England, and I would suggest lay the foundation for the capital accumulation that leads to the Industrial Revolution on the backs of those natural resources that were uh, pulled into Europe. Following that, we have the fight for the creation of a nation state of Mexico. And the nation state of Mexico obviously inherited the territorial uh, extension of the Spanish empire. With the United States momentum to the West in the momentum that was called manifest destiny, uh, of a sacred uh, uh, movement that was decreed by God to a chosen people, uh, and that was moving westward, uh, clashed with the, the presence of others. And I think here we should point out that in that national narrative, the control of movement was already in place in the United States with slavery, and the slave state that was internal to, in quotes, the liberal free state, and also with the control of indigenous communities and the movements of borders from the Appalachian uh, to uh, the Mississippi and, and as they move, so that the United States in that uh, manifest destiny movement dragged behind it, you might say, various borders and, and move them as, as needed. And so war broke out between the United States and Mexico. And the United States invaded Mexico through California, through New Mexico, through northern Mexico itself. And the largest force went from New Orleans to Veracruz, following the route of Cortes into Mexico City. Mexico was conquered by the United States, as uh, we hearing the hymn of the Marines from the halls of Moctezuma. And uh, why did the United States not maintain Mexico? Because uh, they understood that it would be a very prolonged war. Mexico was expert in wars in what we call today uh, guerrilla wars. And so the United States uh, signed a treaty with Mexico uh, that turned all of the north, northern Mexico to the United States, 50% uh, of Mexico was turned over to the United States. And the border was established and has remained with a few variations. Uh, one, the Gatheson Purchase in the area in which I live that was turned over uh, to uh, the United States. Uh, in, in the 1850s, 1854. You are listening to excerpts from educator and activist Lupe Castillo's presentation, Broadening Our Borderland History, from The Migrant Trail 2020 Alternative Experience on 30 Minutes, from 91.3 KXCI Tucson. Now, important to understand is the treaty supposedly guaranteed 
uh, to those people remaining in these territories, uh, estimated somewhere around 200,000 uh, Mexican citizens, another 200,000 uh, of indigenous uh, communities outside of that uh, citizenship, that there were certain guarantees to be made uh, to these uh, communities. However, very quickly uh, was established controls over these communities, some by law and some by extra legal means, uh, by social control, vigilantism, uh, by social practice, uh, by imposing Jim Crow presence in, in, in these uh, areas so that the region was racialized and was placed under control. Uh, you might say that the indigenous community were rounded up and put in open air detention centers, if you will, the reservations. The indigenous communities were pushed where the uh, United States wanted them to go. And, and the Mexicanos were also uh, pushed into to areas living in very segregated uh, conditions. Um, and that there were forces like the Texas Rangers, uh, which were forces that were used by the state for control, not only of indigenous communities, but also uh, Mexicanos and, and also for uh, Blacks. In the 19th century, we began to see uh, the Immigration Exclusion Acts of the Chinese because they become too other uh, for the presence uh, that they have in California. In, in all of this, there was a great deal of resistance and we don't have time to go into all of the forms of resistance, but they range all the way from violence uh, to filing lawsuits in courts and so forth. The more oppression, the more oppressive conditions, the, the more resistance and resistance come in different forms. And so we have to look at the different forms uh, that were used in resisting, whether it was um, mutual societies, or whether it was armed struggle as well. Now, the border as was imposed remains basically uh, open throughout the 19th century and into the early 20th century. As capital investment came into the greater West, uh, this was enormous investments, not only by private industries, but more importantly, by the government. Because there's this kind of fantasy and myth that we have that the West was um, uh, in its moving frontier ethos uh, was individualistic, uh, independent, but in fact, it was the government that put tons of money into the building of railroads and uh, other infrastructure of roads, new towns, and this brought about the need for enormous uh, workers, construction, and then the industrialization of mining that was able to be carried out because of railroad bringing in machinery, uh, industrialization of the cattle industry. And then you have the blooming of agriculture in desert areas 
as a result of the damming of the rivers, principally the Colorado, and therefore opening desert areas of cheap water uh, to the LA, Los Angeles Basin, the Imperial Valley, the Maricopa areas, and, and so forth. And this brought about also the need for workers. And then you have the rise of the tourist industry to see, you might say, the creation of uh, what the tourist industry wanted to see. So you have Spanish days, uh, you have Indian days, uh, rodeos, and, and so forth uh, that creates the, the tourist uh, industry. All of this demands a lot of uh, workers, a uh, very intensive uh, need for workers. And so workers are brought in from the South. And so what develops then is the need for workers coming in. There was no fear of that because when they came in, and I say came in because they were outside, when they came in, uh, they were uh, living in segregated communities, segregated schools, uh, a criminalization of a system uh, as well. So that there was already controls in place. And when the industries collapse, as happened during the First World War with the cotton industry, then literally workers would be just pushed back into Mexico. You did not need like formal deportation orders. You just like push people uh, into Mexico. When the immigration reforms began to occur in the United States, and, and we can't go into a lot of the details of how immigration becomes, but you often hear people saying, uh, you, you should come in the way my parents did. Uh, you know, they came in legally. Well, there was no such thing. Uh, the United States simply, you just bought a ticket, came in, met a few regulations, you, and I use the words, uh, you were not an idiot, you were not diseased, et cetera, and then you could uh, come in. But by 1917, there begins to uh, form the idea that we should control uh, our borders. And between 1917 and 1924, there was a great immigration reform, which was based on race, that the original sender countries would now be favored, and that it was based on eugenics, in other words, white supremacy. The people that at that time were to be excluded were Southern Europeans and Eastern Europeans, basically meaning Italians and Russian Jews. Now, interestingly, Mexicanos and people from the South and the Caribbean were not excluded because workers uh, were needed. And so um, also at this time, the Border Patrol is established. Uh, the first agents that were brought in uh, really were actually chasing the Chinese who had come through Mexico and coming up the border. But what is important to understand is they came from the Texas Rangers. And I still submit that to this day, the culture of the Texas Rangers is deeply rooted in the Border Patrol. No matter who comes into the Border Patrol, whether they are uh, Chicanos, Blacks, or other minorities, 
they are taught that culture and that is their, their behavior. Now, on the wall itself, and we have to kind of ask ourselves, why is it that the militarization and the intensification and militarization uh, begin in the midst of NAFTA or the North American Free Trade Agreements? If we were going to open all borders, why was it that that's when the border patrol began to be uh, increased to beginning in 1994 and going all the way to the present, going from a few thousand to what is over 20,000 border patrol now. We can explain at this time is that there was going to be this enormous change in which you have um, the neoliberal consensus that is coming forth in which free trade means free movement of capital, free movement of goods and commodities, but you are going to control workers and the movement of workers. And that, that militarization was then we began to see the end of what we would call the welfare state or the New Deal state, that freedom and freedom of movement is now going to be codified for the few as civil rights that had been fought uh, for in the 60s and 70s and before that began to be eroded uh, so that the nation state begins to serve as the security agent, the protector for what becomes global capitalism and capitalists, the 1%. Uh, to move freely uh, in its ferocious accumulation uh, of wealth at the expense of workers. So that literally factories could be picked up from one nation state and taken to another uh, to prevent um, unionizing and so forth. So that places like Mexico to this day must still negotiate to survive and to survive for whom? For its elites, obviously not for its uh, uh, people. So uh, this then is where, where we are in terms of the enormous shadow that this wall casts uh, and all walls everywhere. That the wall we are focused on is a place, but utter indifference uh, to the devastation and the enormous violence that is committed not only against human but also flora and fauna to the very face that is so sacred and a wall that expands to the interior it is reflected in the detention centers right now where people are dying uh, because of the virus where people are being released and deported with a virus to infect uh, their communities, their families, and, and so forth. So that the shadow of the wall is not just the place where it is being built, uh, but certainly it casts that violence uh, everywhere as well. Uh, to conclude, um, I would like uh, to say, uh, 
in all of this, what is uh, the role that we uh, see migrants and people in movement, not only in this area, but all over the world. People in movement, I, I would suggest, are the revolutionaries of the 21st century. It is they who are walking through the walls, facing jails, facing torture, facing uh, more than hardship, enormous violence. They face death day in and day out, but they will not be stopped. And so we who are on the migrant trail and all of us working in our communities, uh, we must stand with them. And we must um, not only stand with them, but walk with them through walls as well. You've been listening to excerpts from educator and activist Lupe Castillo's presentation, Broadening Our Borderland History from the Migrant Trail 2020 Alternative Experience. Since 2004, a group of committed people have gathered to call for an end to migrant deaths along the U.S.-Mexico border. Every May, hundreds of participants have embarked on a week-long, 75-mile walk from Sasebe, Sonora, Mexico, to Tucson, Arizona, to call for an end to migrant deaths along the U.S.-Mexico border and to stand in solidarity with victims of global migration. This year, due to the COVID-19 pandemic, participants were unable to physically unite to remember those who have died crossing. In order to continue to raise awareness about migrant deaths and to help raise money for local border justice organizations, organizers launched an alternative migrant trail walk experience to bring people together in a virtual environment. More information is available at azmigranttrail.com. This has been part two of a multi-part series. Thank you for listening to 30 Minutes from 91.3 KXCI Tucson. I'm Amanda Schager. You can find this and all recent episodes on the 30-minute program page at kxci.org.